Hello and welcome to Sean Keaveney's Not So Simple, a new podcast I've put together with the cranially over-endowed thinkers over at Pan Macmillan. It's a cravenly self-serving idea concocted to deepen my knowledge of the world by speaking to some of the world's foremost experts in biology, psychology, journalism and beyond. In it, I ask burning questions such as, what does that mean? What are you on about? And, eh? This is a halcyon time for the dissemination of great ideas into the public consciousness. So it's lovely to get the chance to sling a saddle on the wild horse of ideas and ride it into town without getting bucked off. On each episode, you'll hear a short extract from my guest's most recent book, then we'll speak to them for a bit. Our first ever guest is Stephen Johnson, best-selling author of Everything Bad Is Good For You and How We Got To Know. Stephen's one of the best and most respected technology writers in the world today, and his new book, available now, is called Wonderland. In the book, Stephen claims that throughout history, one of the primary driving forces behind technological change has been the desire for new forms of entertainment. Here, Stephen draws the links between bone flutes, strawberry cheesecake, Pythagoras and the pop charts. Roughly 43,000 years ago, a young cave bear died in the rolling hills on the northwest border of modern-day Slovenia. A thousand miles away and a thousand years later, a mammoth died in the forests above the River Blau, near the southern edge of modern-day Germany. Within a few years of the mammoth's demise, a griffin vulture also perished in the same vicinity. 5,000 years after that, a swan and another mammoth died nearby. We know almost nothing about how these different animals met their deaths. They may have been hunted by Neanderthals or modern humans. They may have died of natural causes. They may have been killed by other predators. Like almost every creature from the Paleolithic era, the stories behind their lives and deaths are a mystery to us, lost to the unreconstructable past. But these different creatures, dispersed across both time and space, did share one remarkable posthumous fate— After their flesh had been consumed by carnivores or bacteria, a bone from each of their skeletons was meticulously crafted by human hands into a flute. Bone flutes are among the oldest known artifacts of human technological ingenuity. The Slovenian and German flutes date back to the very origins of art. The caves where some of them were found also featured drawings of animal and human forms on their walls suggesting the tantalizing possibility that our ancestors gathered in the firelit caverns to watch images flicker on the stone walls, accompanied by music. But musical technology is likely far older than the Paleolithic. This chronology is one of the great puzzles of early human history. It seems to be jumping more than a few levels in the hierarchy of needs to go directly from spearheads and clothing to the invention of wind instruments. Eons before early humans started to imagine writing or agriculture, they were crafting tools for making music. This seems particularly puzzling because music is the most abstract of the arts. Paintings represent the inhabitants of the world that our eyes naturally perceive, animals, plants, landscapes, other people. Architecture gives us shelter. Stories follow the arc of events that make up a human life. But music has no obvious referent beyond a vague association with the chirps and trills of birdsong. No one likes a hit record because it sounds like the natural world. We like music because it sounds like music, because it sounds different from the unstructured noise of the natural world. 
and what sounds like music is much closer to the abstracted symmetries of math than any experience a hunter-gatherer would have had 100,000 years ago. A brief lesson in the physics of sound should help underscore the strangeness of the archaeological record here. Some of the bone flutes recovered from the Paleolithic cave sites are intact enough that they can be played, and in many cases, researchers have found that the finger holes carved into the bones are spaced in such a way that they can produce musical intervals that we now call perfect fourths and fifths. In terms of Western music, these would be F and G in the key of C. Fourths and fifths not only make up the harmonic backbone of almost every pop song in the modern canon, they are also some of the most ubiquitous intervals in the world's many musical systems. Though some ancient tonal systems, like the Balinese gamelan music, evolved without fourths and fifths, only the octave is more common. Musicologists now understand the physics behind these intervals, why they seem to trigger such an interesting response in the human ear. An octave, two notes exactly 12 steps apart from each other on a piano keyboard, exhibits a precise 2 to 1 ratio in the waveform it produces. If you play a high C on a guitar, the string will vibrate exactly two times for every single vibration the low C string generates. That synchronization, which also occurs with the harmonics or overtones that give an instrument its particular timbre, creates a vivid impression of consonance in the ear, the sound of those two waveforms snapping into alignment every other cycle. The perfect fourth and fifth have comparably even ratios. A fourth is a ratio of four to three, while a fifth is a ratio of three to two. If you play a C and a G note together, the higher G strings will vibrate three times for every two vibrations of the C. By contrast, a C and an F sharp played together create the most dissonant interval in the Western scale, the notorious tritone, once called the devil's interval, with a ratio of 43 to 32. The existence of these ratios has been known since the days of ancient Greece. The tuning system that features them is often called Pythagorean tuning, after the Greek mathematician who, legend has it, first identified them. Today, the average seventh grader knows Pythagoras for his triangles, but his ratios are the cornerstone of every pop song on Spotify. The study of musical ratios marked one of the very first moments in the history of knowledge where mathematical descriptions productively explained natural phenomena. In fact, the success of those mathematical explanations of music triggered a 2,000-year pursuit of similar cosmological ratios in the movement of the sun and the planets in the sky, the famous music of the spheres that would inspire Kepler and so many others. Waveforms, integer ratios, overtones. None of these concepts were available to our ancestors in the Upper Paleolithic. And yet, for some bizarre reason, they went to great lengths to build tools that could conjure these mathematical patterns out of the simple act of exhaling. So put yourself in that Slovenian cave 40,000 years ago. You've mastered fire. You've built simple tools for hunting. You've learned how to craft garments from animal skins to keep yourself warm in the winter. An entire universe of further innovation lies in front of you. What would you choose to invent next? It seems preposterous that you would turn to crafting a tool that created vibrations in air molecules that synchronized at a perfect 3 to 2 ratio when played together. Yet that is exactly what our ancestors did. I suspect music first emerged not with a need, but with a difference. 
an unusually resonant sound happened to emerge out of the structure of some hollow object, a reed or a bone, creating a tone just different enough from the ordinary cacophony of the world that the ear took note. The sound wasn't meaningful yet or laden with the kind of emotional overtones that humans now associate with music. It was just new. And like the unusual shade of Tyrian purple, because the sound was new, it was interesting, worth repeating, worth tinkering with. As these early instruments began to be capable of triggering octaves when played as an ensemble, it may be that our distant ancestors found the sound particularly evocative because male and female voices are, on average, roughly an octave apart. And so the strange consonants of the proto-flute seemed to echo the sound of a conversation between a man and a woman. Because music has such a long history in human society, some scientists believe that an appetite for song is part of the genetic heritage of Homo sapiens, that our brains evolved an interest in musical sounds the way it evolved color perception or the ability to recognize faces. The question of whether music is a cultural invention or an evolutionary adaptation has been a contentious one in the last decade or so, a debate originally triggered by Steven Pinker's best-selling manifesto of evolutionary psychology, How the Mind Works. Pinker is famous for seeing the mind as a kind of toolbox with a set of specific attributes shaped by the evolutionary pressures of our ancestral environments. But music he considers to be a cultural hack designed to trigger circuits in the brain that evolved for more pressing tasks. In one of the book's most controversial passages, he compared music to strawberry cheesecake. This is what Pinker writes. We enjoy strawberry cheesecake, but not because we involved a taste for it. We evolved circuits that gave us trickles of enjoyment from the sweet taste of ripe fruit, the creamy mouth feel of fats and oils from nuts and meat, and the coolness of fresh water. Cheesecake packs a sensual wallop unlike anything in the natural world because it is a brew of megadoses of agreeable stimuli, which we concocted for the express purpose of pressing our pleasure buttons. Music is auditory cheesecake an exquisite confection crafted to tickle the sensitive spots of at least six of our mental faculties. Something about that cheesecake metaphor did not sit well with other scientists, and in the years that followed, many argued that the taste for music must have had some direct adaptive value, given the prominence of musical instruments in the early archaeological record and the ubiquity of music across all human societies. Some believe that musical chanting may have predated language itself, that words and sentences evolved out of the pre-linguistic communication of harmony and rhythm. Others take the sexual conquest of modern musicians as a sign that musical talent may be a trait encouraged by sexual selection. Having a gift for song didn't make you more likely to survive the challenges of life in the Upper Paleolithic, but it did make you more likely to reproduce your genes. One premise unites both sides in this debate— that music, quote, presses our pleasure buttons, as Pinker describes it. Yet there is something too simple in describing our appetite for music this way. Sugar and opiates, to give two examples, press pleasure buttons in the brain in a relatively straightforward fashion. Given a taste of one, we instinctively return for more of the same, like those legendary lab rats endlessly pressing the lever for more stimulants and we put our ingenuity to work concocting ever more efficient delivery mechanisms 
for these forms of pleasure. We refine opium into heroin. We start selling soda in big gulp containers. But music, like the patterns and colors unleashed by the fashion revolution, appears to resonate with our pleasure centers at more of an oblique angle. The pleasure in hearing those captivating sounds doesn't just establish demand for more of the same. Instead, music seems to send us out on a quest for new experiences, more of the same, but different. Wherever you fall on the evolutionary question, music confronts us with one undeniable paradox. This most abstract and ethereal of entertainments, conjured up out of the invisible symmetries of air molecules vibrating, has a longer history of technological innovation than any other form of art. Since tones generated by that first bone flute resonated in our ears, we've been chasing new sounds, new timbres, new harmonies. And that pursuit led to countless technological breakthroughs that shaped modern life in entirely non-musical ways. The pursuit of novelty recurs again and again in the history of play. One way to imagine it is that evolution has given us two kinds of pleasure buttons. The first is an all-hands-on-deck kind of button. We need food, we need warmth, we need offspring. If we don't have those things, we will die or our genes will not be passed on to the next generation. So there are, quote, pleasure buttons associated with the satisfying of those needs, the pleasures of sex, of eating proteins and carbohydrates. But there are other, less urgent pleasures, like the sound of air being blown through a vulture bone. We don't need to hear that sound in any existential sense. But nonetheless, something about it captures our attention, prods us to seek the experience out in future environments. But at the same time, something about it compels us to vary the experience. The pure pleasure buttons in the brain, like the endorphin system, don't compel you to seek out anything other than increasing amounts of endorphins. In fact, the pleasure associated with them is so powerful that most people who get addicted to artificial versions like heroin or Oxycontin lose interest in other experiences altogether. The pull of opiates is centripetal. Most heroin victims die alone for a reason. But music, like other similar forms of play, is a push. It propels you to seek out new twists. That exploratory, expansive drive is what separates delight from demand. When we are in play mode, we are open to new surprises, while our base appetites focus the mind on the urgent needs of staying alive. Understanding that distinction is crucial to understanding why play, despite its seemingly frivolous veneer, has led to so many important discoveries and innovations. The bone flutes must have sounded enchanting to the early humans of the Upper Paleolithic, but they were just the beginning. I just want to dwell in that space for a moment that you've uh, created in my, in my brain cavity there, Stephen, this, this sort of little fulcrum of time, pre-music, and this idea of of early humans all around the globe creating these little bone flutes uh, sort of separately from each other and mm. conjuring something novel 
out of nowhere. I, I've got this idea that the, the Jimi Hendrix of the bomb flute was out there somewhere as well, weren't they? Sort of, you know, sort of with lots of groupies, I imagine, and that's probably feeds somewhere into the the uh, genetic success of these people. But it, it, it brings me to the quote from the book, from which you've said, which is, "You'll find the future where people are having the most fun." And that's sort of where this, that, that's sort of central to this book, isn't it? That, that you talk about novelty and fun and frivolity. They're anything but frivolous. These endeavors are they? And they're and they're ancient, right? I mean, uh, the that whole discussion of of bone flutes. You could do the same argument with early jewelry and ornamentation. They're they're kind of shell necklaces that are about a hundred thousand years old. We think. Um, so you have this point where people, ha- as as you know, I can say in that excerpt, they they have a lot of work to do in terms of inventing core technologies, right? They haven't invented writing, they haven't invented invented the wheel, <laughs> but but instead they're like, but these jewels are so beautiful, this 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 necklace is so lovely, that sound from the bone flute. So fr- from the very beginning, the the point at which we become modern, we are interested in these delightful things, and that is part of the argument of the book is that is a core part of who we are as a species. Um, and that in a sense, if you, if you could travel back in time and, and, and look at those uh, early humans with their bone flutes and their jewelry, that, that trying to predict what was coming, um, those seemingly trivial sides of their uh, kind of lifestyle would actually have been a, a quite a good vision of what was coming uh, in, in our future. So there is often this sense of things that begin as play that begin as, the pursuit of delight end up being previews of kind of much more serious coming yeah. attractions. Well, I mean, for a start, it's, it's, it seems unbelievable, but you very quickly after that passage link um, the woolly, the dead woolly mammoth and the bone flute to Charles, Bab- Charles Babbage and the internet and the, the iPhone that's sitting on top of the, 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 the desk here. Can you give us a quick press <laughs> yeah, of how yeah, you yeah, get there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's actually one of my, my favorite parts of the book. And actually, one of the last things that I wrote, I wrote the, the whole book all the way through and didn't have a chapter on music and then went back and kind of discovered, I'd always wanted to do it, but I couldn't quite figure out how to do it. And it turned out that there is a instrument that was designed um, at a place called the House of Wisdom in in Baghdad at the height of the Islamic Golden Age, which I had written about already in in, in the book. It, the book actually opens there. Um, uh, but I didn't know about this particular instrument until I was done with the first draft. And, and basically, the House of Wisdom was kind of like a mix of a maker lab and a think tank. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were all these engineers there who were doing this extraordinary work, mostly just making toys, but the toys had really advanced engineering um, uh, on display in, inside them. A lot of them are kind of automatons, little kind of miniature robot kind of toys. And uh, one of the things that they invented, which we almost lost track of, actually, it was almost kind of lost to history, and then we found this manuscript, and I say we, I didn't have anything to do with it, but <laughs> someone found it 100 years ago in Syria, I think. And th- th- they had created this device that they called the instrument that plays itself. And the instrument was basically, interestingly, appropriately, an automated flute player. Mm-hmm. Um, behind the scenes, it was actually an organ. And what made it so radical is um, you could switch the songs that you wanted it to play. So it used like a music box. It used this rotating cylinder with pins in it, the pins corresponding to the the notes and the length, length of the notes you wanted to play. And these engineers specifically designed it so that you could swap out 
the cylinders. If you wanted it to play a new song, you'd take out a cylinder, cut a new recording. They literally called it cut, using the language that we would later use for cutting a record. And then you could put in this new set of instructions, and it would play a completely different song. So this is really the first programmable machine ever created, a machine that if you give it a different set of encoded instructions, it will behave differently based on this these, this new code. So the the whole distinction between hardware and software really kind of becomes thinkable with this musical instrument. And that distinction, which is so I mean, one of the defining conceptual kind of leaps of our modern life, um, it actually stays in music for 700, 800 years in the form of music boxes, programmable music boxes. And eventually... It gets applied to um, looms, to uh, programmable looms. Um, Jacquard comes up with a great idea of programming the looms with punched paper cards instead of rotating mechanical cylinders. And then Charles Babbage, in designing the first programmable computers ever, takes directly from Jacquard the the punched cards and 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 creates the analytical engine, um, really the first computer ever devised. So this the kind of if you take a step back and think where did the modern computer come from you know the traditional way we tell that story is oh well it came from the military it came from cracking the enigma codes it came from calculating rocket trajectories all of which is true it's a big part of the story but it also came from a programmable flute and a an automated loom you know weaving beautiful patterns in in fabric and if you only tell the story of the military roots you miss this whole history of play this incredible really i mean this in the tiny amount of time we've got there's so much to go at but i mean you also talk a lot about the fashion trade it's very wide ranging you go back to the cretaceous period <laughs> to describe why <laughs> right. that those southern states have got sort of cotton you know sort of black <laughs> cotton soil um, but but it is uh, how something as innocuous as enjoying the feel of cotton can precipitate globalization you sort of cover that pretty well here and and the spice trade as well which is similar isn't it it's something seemingly frivolous we don't need nutmeg particularly but our need for it was colossal, and that's what's driven us to where we are today with our globalized nature, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's a big theme of the book um, that's true both in the story of cotton and the story of spices, which is that the pursuit of delight uh, is is a major driver of globalization. And and you, you can understand why. It's in a sense what you're looking for is new experiences, right? Um, you want something surprising and interesting. And one way to come up with new experiences to invent new tools like a flute um, another way is to venture to some other part of the world and bring back something, whether that's nutmeg, which only grew for thousands of years, only grew in one of five islands uh, uh, east of Indonesia, um, or fabrics like calico and chintz that had come from India that had both the soft kind of sensual feel of cotton, but also had these beautiful vibrant patterns that um, you could wash multiple times without the patterns fading, fading away. And in both those cases, those uh, cotton and and spices are really the roots of a modern global economy. All, all these tensions we're dealing with right now of people resisting kind of you know free trade networks and and battles over what that means to national economies with Brexit and Trump. Mm. You know they they start with spices and with cotton. I love the idea of it's almost like. A, a human in the 70s seeing a picture from Voyager spacecraft of Neptune or something, you know, in back in those days, just putting a clove in your mouth. It's like time travel, space travel to them, isn't it? You know, it's, it's being able to visit an entirely other part of the world, really. Well, the, I think it's kind of amazing to think that they found evidence um, 
of, I, th- I can't remember if it's nutmeg or cloves, but they found evidence of one of those spices that only grew on the Spice Islands in ancient Babylon um, that dated back to something like 2000 or 3000 BC. And that meant that by definition, that spice had to have traveled all the way around the world at an age when people living in the Middle East had no idea of the existence of Indonesia, much less these spice islands. But somehow a relay network of traders had been set up to bring those spices that literally traveled farther than any human being had ever traveled at that point. So even then, you know, this is 4,000 years ago, there was enough of an interest in this exotic flavor. And as you said, it was one of the only ways you had of experiencing these you know, the kind of the edges of the map. You couldn't see a photograph of it. You couldn't see a movie of it. Um, but you could literally taste it. You could yeah. take, taste something from that part of the world. And that was that was the, <laughs> almost like the, the beginning of, you know, uh, movies or cinema yeah. uh, taking you to some other place. You, you started with taste. I love, I love the idea as well that, um, you know, because Europe itself didn't have any of this to hand, really, the exotica, and you talk about vanilla, and so, you know, you can always taste it, actually, when you're reading the book. It all becomes very sensuous. That that's why Europe became the engine that it became, and the engine of uh, of industrialization and things like that, because we had to create ways to set our desires for these things. And if it wasn't for that, if it was all in our back garden, perhaps we wouldn't have had an industrial revolution until now. Maybe it's kind of a Jared Diamond argument, an adaptation of his argument, in the sense that Europe had very few spices because Europe, well, there were no tropical rainforests <laughs> in Europe. And so you had much less biodiversity in Europe and you had uh, most spices evolved as weapons, but kind of biodefenses. Um, and, you know, because they were in these diverse ecosystems with lots of potential predators or, you know, other creatures yeah. that would eat their food, they, they evolved these, you know, seemingly noxious tasting things. And human beings eventually stumbled across them and said, that's really spicy, but I kind of like it. <laughs> and so if Europe had happened to have been uh, a more ecologically diverse um, part of the world, we would have had less need to explore for these exotic spices and the whole history of the world would have changed. It's, it's remarkable, really. And you, you talk about the East India Company, the Google, Microsoft, and HSB of their time all sort of amalgamated into one. Um, but it's, you talk about the cotton trade and the fact that uh, even in northwest England and places like that, the cotton mills, um, some terrible deprivation going on there. That, that's actually quite close to my heart, Stephen, because I come from a place called Lee in Lancashire, and that's that. that was, I guess my forebears and ancestors would have lived like that, you know. Yeah. But what I also love these connections that you make are so fantastic, like the humble Dorito, for instance. <laughs> you know, it's technically related to a scorpion in a sense for that same reason you just mentioned, isn't it? Because it, you know, a sort of hot and spicy Dorito is it's it's with the ultimate ultimate global foods, isn't it? Well, there are two things there. I, one of the things I do in the book is I dissect the ingredients list of uh, you know what what's on if you look on the on the bag of Doritos the onion did a parody a few years back where they said Frito-Lay celebrates its one millionth ingredient because <laughs> <laughs> um, there's so many but if you actually just break down all the flavors that are there it is this amazing global stew there you know the roots of all the actual flavors come from all over the world literally five continents at least um, and so we, we take that for granted now, but that is something that the spice trade initially enabled, that we would bite into something and taste all of the world yeah. in that in that seemingly innocuous uh, kind of roadside highway convenience store kind of flavor. But the spices, I mean, you know, kind of uh, chili pepper, um, what's, what I think is so telling about this is that 
chili pepper, the reason hot food, spicy food, feels like it's hot, and we use that metaphor, is because it is literally uh, tricking sensors on on our tongues and our body that are designed to detect actual heat. And so when you feel that, oh, this is really spicy, there's an alarm going off in your tongue saying, like, I think you may have just licked fire (laughs) (laughs) that has evolved over all this time. And and those spices evolved that, again, as a weapon, as a kind of bioweapon or whatever. And And it shows you... I think it's a reminder of how the pursuit of these seemingly trivial um, things like spices allows us to expand uh, the kind of boundaries of our natural kind of innate human taste, right? Evolution has taught us to be aware, be afraid of that, uh, of, of that taste. And yet we're capable of ignoring our genes and saying, you know what? I kind of like it. it is spicy and I do feel like my mouth is on fire, but this is cool. I'm into this. And that that's one of the things that, that play and the pursuit of delight helps us do is get past our genes and, and invent new ways to, to be in the world and to find pleasure. We're overriding our genes and sort of uh, chasing these outrageous highs really, aren't we? Yeah. I mean, there's so much in, I mean, you know, you talk about how 18th and 19th century coffee houses, this space, sort of, you know, how all these different things um, predate uh, such things as uh, racials uh, coming together of the races and museums and things like this. All, there are incredible amounts of things to talk about in here, but I, I specifically want to concentrate for the last part on your last sentence where you basically say, the f- in the future, what we shouldn't, what we, we we might be focused on the wrong thing to be worried about. Instead of worrying about artificial intelligence robbing us of our jobs and becoming some kind of malevolent force, uh, we should really be worried about when machines start to play. <laughs> right. And that's a really, what do you mean exactly <laughs> yeah, by yeah. that? Well, there's there's a, a long connection between com- computers and and play. We already talked about the connection between computers and music, which is even richer than we alluded to. But there's, but games and computation have a long history as well. So Turing first starts to think about artificial intelligence in the context of could you devise a machine that could play a tolerable game of chess, for instance. Mm. The Turing test in part comes out of that thought experiment. And you know we have supercomputers now like Watson – where they really they decided that the best way to train, you know, one of the most advanced forms of artificial intelligence uh, on the planet was to have it learn how to play Jeopardy, to play a game show, right? Which is which is kind of lovely, right? And so there seems to be in in human development um, and in and other species as well. There seems to be a direct correlation between the amount of time the organism spends in childhood play and the ultimate kind of adaptive, flexible intelligence of that creature. Um, so if you spend a lot of time at play as a child, you're not just learning specific rules for how to be in the world. You're learning an open-ended kind of a willingness to change and build new strategies and openness to chance and randomness, all the things that happen in games and play, right? And other mammals, particularly that, that do this a lot, are also very smart. Dolphins play. Um, foxes play a lot. Um, humans just have the longest childhood for play. So... When we think about artificial intelligence and you know reaching some threshold, sometimes talk about it in terms of superintelligence or the singularity where the machines are suddenly way smarter than we are, um, 
that's a whole interesting debate, but it occurred to me writing this book that, you know, what we should be really worried about is if we start to see signs that the computers aren't just sitting there trying to figure out how to take over the world, but they're like, you know what, I just want to slack up for a while and, and play this game with this other computer, if that's okay. That will be the sign that we should be yes. really worried. That's when they're going to stumble across some terrible thing and take 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 over the entire universe. Well, there is that, pos- that, that postulation, isn't there, that, you know, we are stuck in a dimension where we are merely um, sort of agents in a game from some higher intelligence. And that it could entirely be the case, couldn't it, Steve? Right. It's kind of what you're, you're saying yourself there. Yeah, now you really kind of freaked me out a little Completely bit. Completely freaked myself okay. out there, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I think that's the, the, the perfect juncture to, to close the conversation. But as you can tell, it's just a brilliant book full of fantastic ideas. Thank and you. Thanks so much for coming in and talking to us about it. That was Stephen Johnson, whose book Wonderland is available as a hardback ebook and audiobook now from all good retailers. Next time we'll be talking with Caroline Webb, a behavioural economist who will be telling us how to have a good day. So there we go. Once again, Wonderland is available from all good retailers now. But for now, that's it. We'll see you next time. I'm off for some Doritos and a strawberry cheesecake.